Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, title of my message is Finding the Power of God. Finding the Power of God. I love being in the Gospels and going through Luke's Gospel because it just resets us on what is our main priority of the church. And that is really a genuine personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, The purpose of the church is not to grow a bigger church. That can happen as more and more people might come to know Jesus, but the main purpose of the church is not to grow a bigger church. The main purpose of the church is to bring people into that personal experience with Jesus Christ. Somebody said amen, but I'd love to hear that again. Amen. Amen. Now, as I say these words out loud, who do you think I'm talking to? Me. Because the pastors are the ones and the staff, our assistants, were constantly planning We're planning what's happening at the small groups. What's happening Wednesday night at youth group? What's the planning? The Easter's coming up. We're constantly planning. What is our, what's our plan? Are we communicating? Are we reaching people? And honestly, the routine of church, the week in, the week out, can cause us to get our eyes off of the main thing. The main thing is not church, it is Jesus. I do not mind saying that to you every week because we're all made of the same stuff and I want you to know why we are here. For all of our efforts of the church, we all know, I'm going to say something else that is so obvious. For all of our efforts in the church, the church is flawed. Don't say amen. Because we're people. And even the most talented, gifted staff still is just made up of people. And here's what I know. That if anything of note, of remembering happens on a Sunday service or anytime we get together, if anything worthwhile happens... It was purely by the grace of God. I don't even care how talented or gifted a pastor is. And I know many very talented pastors, way more talented than I am in my average capacity. And it's so easy to look at people who are talented and say, wow, they are so gifted. And forget the reason they're gifted is because of the grace of God. They didn't make themselves gifted. God enabled them. So whatever they are, it is still by God's enabling. And yet it is so easy to get caught up in the wave of celebrity of certain names in the ministry. It's easy for them to get caught up in their own celebrity. The flesh is weak. One of the funniest things that I've come across in my years of ministry 
was a list of church bulletin bloopers. Do you know what a church bulletin is? You know, churches don't use bulletins hardly any. It's that piece of paper that an usher would give you when you walked in the door, a list of the activities. Well, churches used to do bulletins, and it would, as hard as we would try and get all the information in the bulletin and the right wording and the right information, there would always be something, some typo or something in the bulletin. I have a whole page of really funny bloopers. Would you like to hear a couple of them? Say yes. Okay. I'm going to only give you two because I have to save some for other Sundays. I love this stuff. This, this, this is just funny stuff. Bulletin announcements. They thought they worded perfectly, but they didn't. Here's one. The sermon this morning, Jesus walks on water. The sermon this evening, searching for Jesus. (laughs) That is so funny. Okay, here's another one. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to the choir practice. (laughs) I could read these over and over again. There are some, well, here's another one that's really funny. They had signups for a prayer and fasting conference. And they wanted everyone to know that the price of the conference included meals. <laughs> now think about that. You're going to a fasting conference yeah. and the price of the conference includes meals. Did you catch that? Yes. Well, I'm not going to a conference without good food, but it's just the irony of the whole thing. It just goes on and on and on. We do tend to forget the main thing. When you're a young pastor, you always feel like you have to say something new and fresh. When you're an older pastor, you don't mind at all repeating yourself. Because you realize the main things are forgotten. Whatever I said last week, you probably forgot. So I'm just going to use the same notes from last week. Not really. Peter said this, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it right. As long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a, what? A reminder of these things after my decease. Peter says in just a few verses, I'm going to remind you. In case you forgot, I'm going to remind you again. I don't mind reminding you because I'm going to remind you. (laughs) Peter wrote this toward the end of his life. And that is what experience brings. The thing is to remind people without sounding annoyed that you have to remind them. So I'm, I'm doing my best to not sound annoyed this morning. 
In Luke 5, Jesus says that he has come to do a new work. A new work. And I love the idea that the Lord wants to do something new in my life or in our church. The tendency is to get comfortable with the old and not be flexible for the Lord to do something new. And we're all like that. We're all like that. He had said that the old Judaism had become like an old garment that needed to be mended and it couldn't just be patched with a new piece of cloth put on it. Or like an old wineskin that couldn't receive new wine because there would be this interaction between the new wine and the old wineskin. The old wineskins become inflexible and can't handle the the process that the new wine is going to go through. When a church becomes an old wineskin, one of two things will happen. The Lord will just leave them alone to be content in their old ways and nothing new will ever happen. Even though I think the Lord is often working in old, we might say old traditional churches. My church that I pastored in Portland was 30 years old. Though this church feels like a new church, it has a history of 50 years old. Did you know that? Because of the connection to Deaver Connor and the original church there. And as much as we all want to say, God, work in our lives, we do get comfortable and inflexible. And we all know that saying that we hear in church, we don't do things that way. How many of you have ever heard that before? Okay, those are the cries of an old wineskin. And so the Lord can leave you alone or he can shake things up. And even though it may hurt, it will be good for you. That is the purpose of suffering. It is somewhat like a forest fire that wipes everything out. And yet, you know that in a forest fire, the seeds for new growth are released. And then over the coming years, there's going to be sprouting up new growth. New growth. And you live long enough and you will see the Lord shake things up in your life and make things new again. It's awesome. One of the pastors that pastors, other pastors read for books of ministry is a pastor named Warren Wearsby. Have you ever heard that name before? Now, us pastors read his books. He's really, really amazing at training other pastors. He has this definition for ministry. He says, ministry happens when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Ministry happens when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. We're just the conduit. We're not the source of the ministry. The Lord is the source. And when I learned that as a young pastor, 
I don't have to invent ministry. I don't have to create, manufacture something. It's the Lord who has a work to do. I just get to be a part of it. And the hardest part is knowing accurately what is it, Lord, you want to do. And, and just to be the messenger, the conduit, the hose. The hose gets the water from the, the supply to where it needs to go without contaminating the taste of it. Without question, divine resources are available to every one of you. Do you know that? Every one of you. And without question, human needs are all around us. But the real question is, are we loving channels flowing with those divine resources. I firmly believe that every one of you is intended by God to be a loving channel through which God will work. Every one of you. That's exciting. It's also scary. It's also a responsibility because now I have to upset my little safe little routine for God to work through my life. And maybe I want to do it. Maybe it's inconvenient. Well, that's what we're all figuring out. But I'll tell you, it's way more exciting and rewarding in life for God to work through you than just to bypass you and to leave you alone in your safe little routine. Now, I understand why there are times we don't we, we don't want to be used by God. We kind of want to be left alone. There are valid reasons. Maybe we've had a bad experience at church. Maybe somebody offended us, or maybe you have been part of a dysfunctional church. And the last time you stepped out and volunteered for something, it didn't go well. Guess what? We've all had that experience. And I want to remind you that it's, the churches are flawed, yes, but the Lord is gracious and loving. And rather than put all your hope in the church and how perfect they are, really just quietly say, Lord, how would you like to use my life now? And it might be something here at church or something not here at church. It doesn't have to be something we, you know, help you do. It could be small things to your neighbors or coworkers, but just allowing the Lord to work through your life. In our passage today, Luke 6, 1 through 19, we see how important it is that Jesus has just come to open up the supply of God's grace and power to those people in need. The Jewish leadership, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests have stopped up the flow. They've stopped it up by their complicating the work of God, by their, their legalism and by their religion and tradition. But I'm always amazed at the faithfulness of the Lord to get it going again. If I am open, he'll get it moving again. 
I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, just three principles of ministry out of this passage that I think are so important. The first one is in verses 1 through 11, and that is that people come before program. You know what I mean by that? Program is all the activities we plan in the church. What's most important is not the program, but the people those programs are serving. And yet again, I will confess to you as the ones who plan the programs, it's easy to be so focused on the success of a program and forget the purpose of the program. It is the people that that program is to serve. Follow with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he, Jesus, went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering said to them, have you not read this, what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. In verse six, now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find accusation against him. Does that sound funny? They're watching to find something to accuse Jesus of. But he, Jesus, knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Does this sound like a strange question? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? Verse 10, and when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Even reading this, I feel like most of you don't need any explanation. It's just a strange account of this confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees. In these two conflicts, religious tradition has become more important than serving the people. Do you see that? People are more important than program. We are not excluding people to protect the program. We can mess up the program and plans can get changed 
if it will better serve the needs of people. When religion forgets its role of healing, it has become corrupt. Something is wrong. And remember what I said a week ago, I believe it was, or two weeks ago, that legalism accuses while grace heals. Remember I said that legalism, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were like the policemen who show up on the scene of an accident. Their whole job is to find out who broke the law. But the other emergency vehicles, the paramedics, the firemen, they show up, their whole job is to heal and restore and save the lives. The job of grace is to heal and restore. And whenever we feel that inclination to start accusing, judging, we have become the policemen. We've become like the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the Sabbath was given by God under the old covenant to the Jews only, not to the church. And it was a sign of the old covenant God made with the Jews. With every covenant in the Bible, there is a sign or a symbol or a reminder of that covenant. Did you know that? There are many covenants in the Bible. You know, one great um, example of that is the marriage covenant. When a, a man and a woman are joined together in holy matrimony, I've done many weddings, they exchange promises. They are literally entering into a covenant. We are making promises that we tend to forget, don't we? I'm aware that when I do a wedding, the room is full of guests. And not only am I doing that wedding for the couple, but I am doing it for the guests because Listening to the vows is causing them to remember the vows they made many, many years ago. But because we are prone to forget promises, God often gives us a reminder of the promises made under a covenant. So in the marriage covenant, what is the symbol or the reminder of the promises? Do you know? The ring, the wedding ring. The wedding ring. This April 3rd, my wife and I, Catherine, will be married 40 years. 40 years. And I still love you. As annoying as I am. And so God made a covenant, a contractual agreement with the nation of Israel for his purposes. And the symbol, the reminder of these promises made on both sides by God and by the people was the Sabbath. Do you know why it was the Sabbath? Sabbath means rest. And it was on the seventh day. Do you know why it was the seventh day? Because God created the world in how many days? Sixth day. And he did what on the seventh day? Your geniuses. Bible class. And so as modeled after that, God said to his people, you will rest on the seventh day, which was Saturday. Which actually began at sundown Friday evening. Do you know that? Okay. 
that was for Israel. It was not for the church. From the beginning of the church, what day of the week did the church worship? On Saturday? You're mumbling. On the first day of the week, why the first day of the week? Because that was the day of the resurrection. That was the day in which Jesus rested from his work. Israel worshipped on the day of rest after the old creation. We rest on the first day modeled after the new creation. But in both cases, God intended, say, for Israel, for them to rest. And yet, the Jewish leaders over the generations, to make sure they rested the right way, they wrote volumes and volumes on the right way to rest. Now, if I have a day off, I don't want a bunch of rules about the right way to take a day off. Exactly. If I have a day off, don't tell me what I have to do to have a day off. A day off means a day off, except for the honeydews. And so literally, the Jewish leaders would write, if you're going to lift anything, it can't be over a certain weight. You can't do any work. You can't do this. You can't do this. In 1992, in Israel... Apartment complex of three buildings caught on fire, and yet the Orthodox Jews stood around for a half an hour deciding if they would break the law and use the phone to call the fire department. And because they couldn't overcome the law, which said they should not use technology on the Sabbath day, the apartment buildings burned down. It is silly when you Start complicating the simple word of God. You know, God's word is simple. It's not this complicated. If you make it complicated, then it's on you. God didn't make it complicated. If he says, I want you to rest, it means he wants you to rest. Now, technically, any day for us is fine. But for these Jewish leaders, they... They have forgotten the very purpose of the Sabbath. In the first story, Jesus and the disciples are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. It's Saturday. They grab a handful of grain. They rub it in their hands, blow away the chaff and eat the grain. Now, under the law, it was allowed. If you're traveling or walking through a neighbor's field, you could do that. But on the Sabbath, you could do it. You just couldn't take out harvest equipment. You couldn't bring a sickle and start, you know, mowing down your neighbor's field. That, you know, that was going too far. And they are accusing Jesus and the disciples of breaking the law, which they weren't. Jesus goes back to scripture. He says, have you not read? Now, you realize he's saying to the religious leaders, don't you know the word of God? Have you not read? Do I actually have to remind you, remind you of what you should have learned in seminary? Kind of, it's kind of rhetorical. Haven't you read? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
This is when David was on the run from Saul and he had men with him. They were running from Saul. And at one point, the only food available was the bread that was in the the temple. And he ate that, which was forbidden by law for anyone to eat it except the priest. And yet David and his men ate it. We're trying to figure technicality, technicality. We might say the letter of the law versus the what? The spirit of the law. God allowed it for the sake of the nourishment of David and his men. It wasn't a violation of the law. Even in technically it may have been, but they needed food. They needed food. God is more interested, we might say, in food than the law. In food than the law. Or people come before program. People come before program. That's not the right way to do it. And you know, this same scenario happens in Protestant Protestant and Catholic, you know, denominations. We, and over years and years and years, we start to establish tradition. And God forbid we ever violate tradition. But if those traditions are not serving God's people, the tradition has to be changed. The tradition has to be changed. Jesus then adds The son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he was the one who wrote the law. The place, the house of worship was his house. So he is the one who would be able to say if David's men taking the showbread was actually a violation. Or if the disciples eating the grain was a violation of the Sabbath. And he says it's not. It would be like somebody coming into your house and you set the rules for your house. You can say, it's okay. You don't have to take your shoes off or it's okay. You can do this or you can do this. He's going, it's my house. Don't tell me what I'm going to do in my own house. Again, Jesus is claiming, claiming to be God by saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In the second story, Jesus goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath sees a man with a withered hand, and by now in Jesus' ministry, everyone knows what Jesus is going to do. He has compassion on people. He sees somebody in need, and everyone knows he's likely to heal that man. That's the Jesus we know. That's the Jesus we know. He has compassion for people. Now, the Pharisees know he's likely to do this. And so they are waiting for him to do it, to catch him in a fault. They are just waiting for him to break the law. How silly is that? And so he asks, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? The fact that he has to ask that question shows you shows us how distorted their traditions have become. Now, any of them, if they had an animal that had fallen in a ditch on the Sabbath, they would pull that animal out of the ditch. 
right? And yet here is one of God's own people suffering and they will not minister to him or they are offended that Jesus will minister to him. It is not a violation of God's word or religious tradition to minister to people. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his his hand was restored as whole as the others. And so the, the scribes and Pharisees were shouting with joy, right? They were filled with rage. And so there is a turning here. Now they start plotting what they might do against Jesus. But there is also a significant change in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is seeing if any of them might get with the program. If any of them might see this miracle and change their mind. But they don't. They don't. Jesus now begins to really focus more and more on common people rather than the religious leaders. This is the second ministry principle I want you to write down is that God will use average people to do his work. And this is us. This is me. This is you. That God delights in using ordinary, weak people. Because that when God does something through your lives to help somebody else, there is no way that you should be claiming credit for it. He gets the glory for it. Follow with me. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself And from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Jesus goes out and prays all night because he is hearing from his father. Now, when we say the disciples, we tend to think of the 12, but remember the disciples are all of the group of believers. We don't know how many there are. And when we say the disciples out of this large group, the father clarified to the son, These 12 shall be assigned, called as apostles. Apostle is not, we're all supposed to be disciples. That means a student, a pupil, a learner, one who is learning of Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And out of the group of disciples, then comes more specific assignments. I am a pastor teacher. An apostle It means one who is sent with a commission, like an ambassador. He named them with this commission 
And what makes these men usable wasn't their pedigree, their family, their wealth, their education. It was simply they were like us. They were men who were available. They were willing to take a step away from what else they were doing and commit their lives to Jesus. For them, it was leaving their occupations. For you, it may not be leaving your occupation. For me, it was many years ago. But the key thing is that you say, Lord, I am now available to you. Send me where you want me to go. I want you to know clearly that God delights in using just average, ordinary people. In fact, there aren't any special people. The people who seem to be the the leaders, the names, they're just people who we've seen God use over and over, and we start to think of them differently than before. But at one point, they were just like you. Peter was just a a stubborn, strong-willed fisherman. And then he became the apostle. The third thing I want you to write down in our message today, verses 17 through 19, is that there is power in the name of Jesus. What makes you and I effective is the power of God in the name of Jesus. Verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. The whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Recently, I went into Amazon and did a book search of leadership books. I got a list of 60,000 titles. So I ordered a thousand of them. No. I am amazed at how many leadership books are available. They fill the bookstores. People in leadership, CEOs, pastors, are constantly reading, devouring leadership books. Do you know why? Because they can't figure it out. The other hundred books they read didn't give them the necessary tools. So I need to, I'm, they're constantly searching for something. The key to Jesus' leadership wasn't the seven principles of dynamic leadership. It was simply that he was a man dependent on his father who did the father's will by the power of the spirit. Do you want to know the secret of spiritual leadership? It's dependence on God and the power of the spirit. It's my two secret principles for spiritual leadership. Books are filled with the seven laws of leadership, the 21 principles, the seven whatever. 
And as soon as we read that one, I need to read another one. And there are the gifted leaders who seem to be effective. And the truth is, they don't really know exactly what they're doing, but they write books about it. As if we're going to duplicate what they're doing. Some of the most gifted people can't explain what they're doing. I can explain it. It was the grace of God at work in their lives. The mystery of leadership is is amazing. If we can get anything right, is that we can be yielded to God, filled with the Spirit, and simply do what the Lord has given you to do. The size of the ministry or whatever it is, most of you don't care about that. Pastors get caught up in in that all the time. But the effectiveness of your life is up to the Lord. And to be okay with the Lord working through you to minister to your kids, your spouse, your neighbor, and to just be okay with the scope and the reach of how God wants to work in your life is amazing. But think of even the number of people here, and if we all just did that little bit the Lord sent us to do, how many lives would be impacted around our communities? Think about that. But the power is in Jesus. When we say the name of Jesus, what we mean is the authority of Jesus. And because we are named after the name of Jesus, Ephesians, we've taken the name of Christ, we're Christians. That means we are commissioned under his authority. It would be like you being an ambassador of the United States to another country. You are sent there under the authority of the president of the United States. So you go there, not in your own name, but in the name of the president. That's what it means. You go forward to minister people under his authority and commission. And because he sends you, he equips you. It's that simple. You don't step out and do things that he didn't send you to do. That will get you into trouble. Again, ministry isn't your idea. It's not up to you to kind of manufacture some great thing you're going to go do for God. And we've heard that before. That whatever you can conceive and believe, you can achieve. Maybe you've heard that before. That is not Bible. That's Hinduism. You do not visualize a vision, and go make it happen. It is God who says, I have a work for you to do. Will you do it? Are you available? You say yes or no, and it's his idea. And frankly, the things that I have been able to do in my life in ministry, I never would have thought of. Think of any Bible hero that you have. Anyone, Moses, David, Daniel, 
Not one of them thought of the idea for their ministry. Not one of them. Can you imagine Daniel? I have this vision to go into the lion's den. Right. Daniel, that's a bad idea. Think of something else. No Bible hero conceived of their own ministry. They were ordinary people that God spoke to. They said yes or no. And the complete success of that ministry was God's doing. And we turned them into heroes like they were different from us. They were, but they were just like us. And you know, God delights in using you and me and fishermen because we are not caught up in the tradition. We don't have anything at stake. We don't have egos, right? You don't have egos, do you? Look at me in the eyes. There's no egos in this room. And that, that's the freedom of ministry. It's not about your ego if something succeeds or fails. It is your obedience that the Lord is calling for. And the power to do what he calls you to do is in his name. In the commissioning to go do it. Worship team, come up before I forget to ask you to come up. If we were to start, if you were to start serving the Lord today, you know, I, I talk to a lot of pastors around the country that are discouraged. And after we talk about the challenges and problems, I will ask them one question. Tell me the one thing that you would be excited to do for the Lord today. And, oh, man, I would love to go do this. You know, my second question is, why aren't you doing it? They have allowed some problem in the church, some program in the church to completely overcome the one thing God has called them to do. God forbid that you aren't doing the one thing you would be excited to do for the Lord. 